the Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mystery of life. This podcast is a compliment to the Numinous School, an online intuition development course for people who want their self-awareness to serve a greater good. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, and this week it is my privilege to introduce you to my friend and my teacher, Sparrow Hart. Sparrow has been leading wilderness rites of passage throughout North America for 30 years, and he himself went on his first vision quest in 1971. It was a five-month solo expedition through the Rockies and the Cascades, and today we're talking about the vision quest. I connected with Sparrow over the phone. He was outside the public library in Putney, Vermont. So Sparrow, you have been leading vision quests for decades, and I'm so thrilled to have you on my show finally. I really found my quest was one of the most seminal experiences in my spiritual life. I'd love for you to tell us about your first quest and also maybe just explain for somebody who doesn't know much about a vision quest what some of the fundamental building blocks of a, of a vision quest would be. What are some of the components that you would uh, want people to know about if they've never learned very much about the vision quest ritual? Okay, I'll start with um, maybe start with that second question for people who don't know what a vision quest is, or maybe even have never heard the term. Um, I think the easiest way to introduce it is that most people have heard of these great religious figures through history, you know, Christ, Buddha, Moses, Muhammad, various uh, well-known Native Americans. And a vision quest itself is, is this experience that involves going away from human, uh, human contact, away from civilization. So you usually go into nature, into wilderness, so you're alone, you're in wilderness, and you go without food, and you fast. And it's a way to really drop down and deeply get in touch with what's core and and what your deepest longings and truth is. So throughout human history, we know Christ went into the desert for 40 days and fasted. Moses climbed to the top of Mount Sinai and fasted. Buddha went into the forest and eventually came and sat down under the Bodhi tree and fasted. Mohammed went into a cave and fasted and had his great vision. Black Elk, who's really uh, well-known from the book Black Elk Speaks, uh, talked about his many vision quests. So all of these iconic figures throughout human history and who actually founded uh, spiritual movements, which right now billions of people across the planet follow, virtually all of them began with a vision quest. Mm. So, so that's probably the best introduction for people who are unfamiliar with the term as they can go many people right back into their own or their own spiritual history or their, their own spiritual path. And most of them will find, oh, 
a, a you know a great leading figure, perhaps the person who founded that particular religion or that particular path. Um, often it began with a with a vision quest, mm-hmm. and so so you know today when when people ask you know come to me and ask about a vision quest, you know one of the certainly say to them is that you know I mean you essentially. You know, and and I'm not saying this to in any way diminish any of the religions or spiritual movements which came from those quests. I, but my my point of view is rather than just uh, worship or believe in these great figures who went on a vision quest and then started a spiritual movement, why don't you go on a vision quest and have your own experience mm-hmm. and then come to your deep truth and your deep commitments from that? Mm. And so tell me about how you came to discover that this was an important path for you. Well, um, mine was a, my, my discovery was kind of a mix of um, what I was going through at the time and then a fortunate circumstances. I, you know, I was in college in the late 60s in the Bay Area and then went to graduate school after that. But mostly being in that kind of fertile mix of the 60s, one of the things that I would say what I, the most important thing I learned in college was that I didn't want to have an ordinary life. <laughs> you know, because, you know, there was so much that was alive and, you know, dynamic and, you know, and, and so much at that time, most of the common paths, of course, it was the time of the Vietnam War and um, a lot of feminism, most of the common paths seem really limiting and in some ways soul deadening. Mm. And so the thought that I was going to graduate from these, this elite university and then put on a tie and, you know, basically earn money and <laughs> <laughs> was, it, it felt like my soul would die mm. if I did that. And so, so I, I would say that, you know, after I dropped out of the graduate school, which was in 1971, I, um, you know, through the 70s, I, I came to Vermont and I, I lived in, Vermont had a very kind of vibrant alternative culture at that time. You know, a lot of, uh, I guess now they're referred to as hippie communes. <laughs> and, and I was certainly part of that, but there was a lot of experimentation about, you know, live, live, having different social agreements, social contracts, living with, with people. But, but I would say for me, through the 70s, I had made that initial decision when I left school is that I didn't want an ordinary life, but knowing what I, what someone doesn't want is not the same as knowing what you do want. And so, you know, um, knowing what you want to move away from is not the same as having a direction you're following. Mm -hmm. But through the seventies, I, I read a lot of, um, you know, ethnographic literature about, Primal Cultures, uh, the books by Farley Moet, People of the Deer, um, you know, uh, uh, other books, but Lawrence Vanderpost, The Lost World of the Kalahari, books by Carlos Castaneda, and all of those showed another world, a world that was uh, much more connected to the earth, much more connected to community that uh, where people lived in in very close proximity to you know, the, the earth and the cycles of the seasons and the, 
the moon and the stars, and we're very much more involved in community life. Mm. And all of those really appealed to me. And in 1979, I happened to read one of those books that was, you know, kind of in the genre that I was interested in. It was the book Black Elk Speaks. And Black Elk Speaks is the story of a Lakota holy man who, um, in, the in, in the 1870s, had a great vision. And it's the story of his life and his vision and, and then of the many vision quests he did later in his life. And um, it was a wonderful book and compelling and beautif beautifully written and beautifully told. And when I read that book, I just was just overwhelmed with that. I have to do this. <laughs> <laughs> I just have to have this experience. I have to go on a vision quest. So, you know, I say now... And, you know, that was in, so in 1980, I went on my first vision quest, and you know, here it is, which is 34 years later. And uh, from the perspective I have now, having gone on over 30 of my own and probably having led 150 vision quests for small groups, I can say that I was, um, on the scale of enthusiasm, I was really high, and on that first quest, on the scale of having any smarts or wisdom, I was pathetic. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, but so, but anyway, you know, I was so moved by that book and um, that, you know, the, the next, I read it in the winter and so the next summer I hitchhiked out to South Dakota and went to the top of Harney Peak because in the book, Black Elk was transported to Harney Peak in his great vision. So, mm. you know, I, t I took the whole thing literally. Very literally. Okay, well, this is yeah. a good place for me to ask. In your book, Letters to the River, there is a, a, a place where you're talking about vision and you say, what is vision? Is it a promise, a path, a potential? Is it a goal or a guiding light? And I'd love you to answer your own question there. What is vision? Okay, well, um, many years later, I can say that to, for me now, what vision is, is essentially seeing what is. Mm. Now, now, that can mean many different things. So, because seeing what is, part of what is, is the, we could say, is the multidimensional nature of the universe. Mm -hmm. That's part of what is, and so vision could be this incredibly deep, mystical, almost psychedelic state mm -hmm. in which everything dissolves into love or the, uh, you know, pulsing light or, 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 or transpersonal states where you move way out beyond the bounds of your, you know, your ego and personal self. So vision, that's one possibility of vision. Because if vision is just seeing what is, you know, that's part of what is, mm -hmm. this, the grand picture. But seeing what is could also be having a really strong felt sense of realizing all of the ways you block, you block your perception of that. It could be a really strong um, awareness and realization of your shadow, mm -hmm. all of the parts of you that are resentful angry, scared, sad, and all of the things you do to protect yourself from, from dealing with or, or working with those feelings. 
So sometimes seeing what is 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 can be not very pretty. Mm-hmm. It can sometimes vision is really seeing all the ways you deny your potential or all the ways you refuse the call to being something larger. Mm-hmm. And and I say that that is vision also because but because that's also what's there. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know. Uh, uh, you know, people might say, you know, I wanted the great mystical psychedelic one, and <laughs> and here's and here's what I got. But my response is that is great mm-hmm. because all of that you can work with. Mm-hmm. You know, if you get a really strong and clear, um, clear view and articulation of all, you know, whatever the pain or the trauma from your past or the things you haven't dealt with or the ways you're still trying to please your parents or some life you're living that was just handed to you by the culture and is really not what you really what your soul really wants then that's wonderful because it allows you to work with that and and make real changes in your life so Absolutely. Now yeah. a, a- key aspect of course of the vision quest is being out in nature and you have very interesting locales where you lead quests but nature uh it itself is such a um ever-present reminder you you again i'm going to quote you in the book you say nature is the visible face of spirit the source and sustenance of our lives and throughout your book you you really do um there's a lot of language around sustenance and food and nourishment that comes from nature. How, mm-hmm. how do you then, now I'm kind of like skipping to the end. I'm skipping to incorporation here, but how do you, uh, how do you incorporate that sacred sense of nature when most of us are either working at our computers or, you know, like you go on a quest every year, but for those of us who've never been or who have, and it's been a long time, how do you keep your vision going when you are immersed in the mundane? Um, yeah, that's a great question. And, and it's always, you know, at the end of a vision quest, it's always the big question, which is, how do I go, go home? I've just had this incredibly powerful experience of connection with nature, connection with myself, with my voice, my truth, my, you know, my authentic being. And I probably also had a really strong connection with this small group who've gone on a quest with me. And now I'm going to drive or fly home and, you know, Monday morning, you know, <laughs> you know, punch in the time card. And, uh, yeah, how, how do I do that? Um, so, yeah, to me, that's the, the, biggest, um, the biggest question of what I call the return. Um, and it's 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 something each of you know for people who do go on a vision quest it's something each of us have has to answer in our own way because you know if if we had lived uh, 500 years ago if we lived or we lived in a tribal society we would come back from our vision quest and there would be you know the elders would talk to us there would be feasts in our honor you know um, we might tell our story in front of the whole whole village and people would honor us. We might receive a new name. Based on what we discovered, we might be in, inducted into a particular role or a particular medicine society. And even after all of the, that, those changes, all of that support, 
you know, over the over the days and weeks and months and years that followed, there would be a community of, of people around us to remind us to live our vision, mm -hmm. to live our dream, and to bring it into the world. Now, today, um, today that's a, that's a much more difficult question. So. You know, always at, at the end of uh, Vision Quest, you know, the last day, what, what I focus on with the group is the return, how to go back. Mm -hmm. And every person, you know, you know, people have very different circumstances. Some people go back and they have a really rich support group. They have friends, maybe they have a women's group or a men's group, and maybe they have... Uh, Maybe they're in recovery and they have a 12-step group. And so many people go back and they have these really oh, wonderful places where they can find community, where they can share their story, they can share their commitments, what they've realized about themselves, and get a lot of support for changing their lives and, and living their lives with a different ordering principle, with, with different commitments. So... Some people, and those people are fortunate, have that. But there are other people who, you know, come to these uh, these experiences or an experience of the vision quest, and they get so opened up, and they don't have that when they get home. And so, so then there has to be a lot of help and teaching and instruction about um, the metaphor that I use is like. Um, there's a seed that needs to be planted. You know, you've discovered something precious on your quest. There's a seed that needs to be planted. And when you go home, you have to find fertile soil. Mm. You have to find those, pla those places of community, those places of people who are really willing to have the conversation and listen to the deeper parts of you and honor that. And so, you know, it's... Um, for some people, the going back, that's where the real work of the quest starts. Mm -hmm. if, they don't, if they don't have that in their lives, you know, you know a, good, a good analogy might be that if, um, if someone was an alcoholic or, or an addict of, and, and he or she had always hung out with their friends and got stoned together or, you know, or got uh, drunk together, and all of a sudden they have this kind of um, spiritual experience and they become sober and their life is starts to be ruled by new commitments, then all of those old friends are not going to want. Yeah. They're not. They're not going. Not going to want this new energy. And so, so, so for some people, it may require big changes in their life. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, leaving. You know. You know, putting an end to friendships that won't support their their deeper callings uh, could be an end of a particular kind of work because it's soul deadening or it could be yeah going back could involve uh could involve the end of something mm -hmm. the end of certain positions relationships statuses but but those things will need to happen so that this new energy this more life-sustaining energy can find fertile soil right so and yeah. i think too keeping that that tether taut between you and your soul can be uh, accomplished by incorporating some of the elements. I know when I came back from my quest, I went straight to the mountains and I was fortunate to live close to the mountains. And so I, I took up running again so that I could run the trails and 
you know, sometimes I would just run uphill, you know, as far as I could go (laughs) until I just collapsed at a tree or the river or whatever was there. And I found that communion with nature reminded me of all of the elements of my quest, even though my quest was in the desert. And so there's Mm -hmm. nature. And then there's another element too. You mentioned at the beginning about fasting and you say in, again, in your book, I've foregone food for this feast of vision, this banquet of the soul. And there is something mm-hmm. about that, about that idea of cleansing and emptying out. Can you talk just a little bit about why fasting is so important and what it does for us? Uh, yeah, I could, I could probably talk about it for longer than this interview <laughs> could last. But, um, but yeah, fasting is, so on the one hand, I think first thing I want to say, especially for people who this might be a new idea to, is that going without food, a lot of people have the um, response of, oh, my God, I don't know if I could do that. I get hungry between breakfast and lunch, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, but the first thing I want to say is, is that for those who haven't done it, that hunger for most people is virtually never an issue yeah. on a vision quest. Yeah. yeah. And and I'm sure you know that you having done a quest. Yeah. So, yeah, it really yeah. was the last thing on my mind. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It's like you start fasting in the morning, and maybe about ten o'clock, you your stom- stomach grumbles, and and then it lasts for five or ten minutes and goes away, mm-hmm. and maybe at one o'clock it happens again and goes away, and then by the end of the day, it's gone completely. Mm-hmm. So, 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 so I. I think there's two, there's two important reasons for fasting, and one of them is phys- physiological, and the other is more, we could call it, psychic, emotional, and spiritual. The physiological one is that when we do stop eating, and uh, you know, usually by the end of the first day and, or the start of the second, the, um, we use up the available carbohydrates, and our, and our body switches over and starts breaking down fats. But what happens to us in terms of our psychic space is we get much less focused. You know, uh, we, we become much, much less a type A personality. In, a, in other words, you, a lot of people in daily life, they're stressed. I got to do this. I got to do that. And what happens when people fast is usually starting, you know, after that first day, all of a sudden they get a little, more, little bit more dreamy. All of a sudden... Um, you know, they think of people they haven't thought of in 20 years or, or, or dreams come back to them, some big dream they had two years ago. So, uh, so the first reason is physiological. The physiological changes result in a kind of awareness that's much broader, mm-hmm. much less narrowly, narrowly defined. And, and those kinds of voices, visions, feelings that are usually kind of filtered out because of our, we're focused on doing our task, all of a sudden those much, those broader and larger awarenesses and things that are on the back burner start to emerge and present themselves to us. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the first, and, the first reason, I, and I would call it physiological. The, those physiological changes, you know, uh, result in a psychic change also where we're, where, Things that haven't been attended to, or things that have been su- suppressed, or things that are just um, usually we don't have time for, they start to arise 
and we start to look at them and relate to them and some of them may just be curious and interesting but some are really important dreams or things that have been so important to us that we've forgotten mm -hmm. and all of a sudden they appear mm -hmm. and and so that's the first reason for fasting and and the second is i i like to call you know that quote you used about the feast of the senses mm -hmm. is that um it's more a uh, it's more a, a kind of it's an offering i mean uh, on the one hand on a vision quest yeah the obvious thing that people fast from is they're not they're drinking water but they're not eating any food but they're also fasting from conversation from human companionship they're they're also away from the normal routines of daily life so they've kind of removed themselves from from all of those things that make up their comfort zone mm -hmm. and so it's kind of the act of fasting is a stepping outside of the comfort zone and all of the routines and strategies I have to keep myself there. Right. You know, my, my iPod, my, you yeah. know, my refrigerator, the tele, all of those things. To, and, and they're all gone. And all of a sudden, it's just me and nature. Mm -hmm. And when I, that quote you made, nature is the visible face of the spirit, is... Um, you know, one another way I put this is, we'll never. You know, there's an expression about meeting God, uh, about contacting God. That's called meeting your Maker. Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, you know, a, a quote I came up with is, "You'll never meet your Maker if you only stay inside worlds that you've made." Mm -hmm. In other words, as long as we stay inside the human world with its apartment and walls and technology and radios. That's a world we've created. But when we're inside nature, we're actually in a world that created us. Mm -hmm. We evolved and came out of nature. So all of a sudden, there's just us and this much you know, larger world, which we could call creator, that created the whole, you know, the whole evolution of you know, vegetable life and animal life and, and human life. And all of a sudden, we're meeting that without, without all these barriers and filters in between. And so by giving up all of that comfort zone, it's essentially saying it's an offering. It's, to me, it's like saying I've given up food. I've given up all my routines I usually use to protect and comfort myself. I've given up you know, all of my kind of survival and you know, power and comfort mechanisms. So, yes, please feed me in a different way. Mm -hmm. feed, feed my eyes, feed my ears, feed my heart, feed my imagination, you know, feed my senses. Um, and so we're essentially saying, I've given up all of this. I'm open to being fed in ways that uh, I don't usually allow myself. I'm open to, to meeting you on your terms not requiring you to meet mine. That's beautiful. So, if you yeah. had one piece of advice to give a person who's considering a vision quest, Sparrow, if they're wondering if it's right for them, what would that advice be? Uh, well, what I really want to say is do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's great. That's great. It's so, um, so easy, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, it's it's interesting because yesterday I was at a conference and, you know, I was 
it was really surprising. I went to this conference and I um, and uh, it it was on on creating a a men's health network for New England. Doesn't really matter, but um, I walked up to this guy and um, I, it turns out I'd never met him before. But I kind of walked up to him and I said, "You look familiar." And uh, he said, "No, we've never met, but I'm doing a vision quest with you next month." Oh. <laughs> That's so great. It's meant to be. Yeah, people can do vision quests for lots of different reasons. Because they're in some rite of passage, because they want to find direction and purpose in their life, because they want to all of a sudden create a strong ritual to free themselves of certain ways of being, you know, living as a victim or playing small or whatever. People can do vision quests for a lot lot of... um, different reasons and and get a lot of different results but but as this this man and I were talking uh he said well what's the one thing you could say to every person that you would kind of say you could guarantee that they would get from a vision quest and I said oh and I realized ultimately what I could say for every person is if you, you do a vision quest when you finish you will you will contact and be living in a much bigger world mm-hmm. than you were living in when you started. Mm-hmm. So that's the you'll be living in a much bigger world. Amen. So, yeah, I yeah. concur. Absolutely, absolutely. And for some of us, you'll be coexisting in many worlds. That's how it will feel. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so my last question for you today, Sparrow, comes from the Proust questionnaire. It's a bit of a tradition on the Numinous podcast, and the question is. What do you consider perfect happiness? What do I consider perfect happiness? All right. <laughs> well, that's a surprising question. <laughs> to me, happiness is like the uh, small picture of, you know, happiness is like the, uh, you know, the mass media version of what, what's important to me is joy. Mm-hmm. And and happiness can come and joy. Even uh, happiness can come and go, even if joy and joy can remain. So to me, joy. You know, I'm gonna. Uh, so I'm gonna avoid that question of what's perfect happiness and talk about joy. And to me, joy comes from when you say yes to your life, however it's showing up. Now, when you and so for me, that's saying yes to all that's here, and all that's here may be wonderful friends I have and great work, but it's also yes to the pain and the trauma of my life. It's yes to some of the struggles I had as a child, you know, as a child who was hurt or beaten. So, but to me, ultimately joy comes from saying yes to all of this. And rather than happiness, a lot of times people tend to think of happiness as like some state that you get to, and and then it becomes static. But to me, that what's important is the sense of I am on this journey, uh, you know. And what's interesting, I have a you know the book I the book is called Letters to the River. And so, and 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 maybe my answer has to do with is saying yes to the river. In other words, of and the river has many different phases. Initially, it's like rain falling in the mountains. Mm. You know, initially it comes down in single, isolated droplets. Mm. But then, then it hits the mountain and it fertilizes things. But those droplets come together 
in larger entities and they run down the mountains and and the river you know has a, a very long body from the mountains to the sea and sometimes it's dynamic and uh, rough and thrashing and you know rapids and dangerous and sometimes it's placid and sometimes it's very calm so to me to me you know joy and happiness comes from realizing oh that who i am is actually the long picture from that isolated droplet to the sea mm-hmm. and that at various times the life in between and the life of this river will be passionate and rough and it'll feel like it's everything i can do to keep my head above the water at times it'll feel like oh it's just easy and drifting and i'm just carried along by the current and how sweet um but to me, kind of joy, reali- joy comes from seeing one's life as a journey. And so any particular part of it, whether, it, it's, um, whether it's painful at the moment or joyful at the moment is, yeah, that's just one landscape as you come around the bend. But to realize there's a much bigger, longer, larger entity that you're, uh, that you're playing out and playing through. Um, and so that, yeah, that this moment is not all there is. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for this moment, Sparrow. I really appreciate you saying yes to coming on my show. And thank you. Thank you. I want to thank you on behalf of everyone who's ever quested with you on behalf of myself personally. Thank you for saying yes to the non-ordinary life. And I wish you so many blessings and that I guess I would say, may you dream a great dream. Oh, thank you so much, Carmen, and and you too. And it's been a total pleasure today. What a treasure. I can't tell you how happy I am to have a conversation with Sparrow recorded. Three takeaways is easy for this one. The first quote I'm going to say uh, again and again, you'll never meet your maker if you only stay in the world you have made. That can just apply in so many situations. The second one, I loved it when he said, joy is when you say yes to your life. And he talked about saying yes to the entire breadth and depth, not just the uh, succulent and juicy stuff, but but all the parts, just loving what is. And then finally, just do it. If you have been thinking about going on a vision quest, listen to Sparrow, just do it. You can find more information today about Circles of Air and Stone. That's the name of Sparrow's school. You can find all the information on my website, carmenspaniola.com, C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Just click the podcast tab to find all of the show notes with all of the links and for the books and in particular Sparrow's book, Letters to the River. I want to thank you so much for listening today. If you enjoyed the show, I'd really appreciate your review on iTunes and please share it far and wide so it can reach more seekers just like you because you never know who really needs to hear it right now. And if you'd like to keep exploring the great mystery of life with me, you can go to my website, carmenspaniola.com, and click the link for the Numinous School, my online intuition development course. While you're there, sign up for my monthly email newsletter. You'll instantly receive a meditation download, and you'll get something free from me every month. Until next time, take care. Take care.